Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihera Zazan. Ten years after the overthrow and lynching of the late dictator Mohammed Gaddafi, Libya is still reeling from an unresolved succession of power that has led to civil war and the fragmentation of the country into myriad fiefdoms ruled by a motley crew of local armed groups and various foreign powers fighting proxy wars in Libya. Now that national elections scheduled for December 24th have been agreed by most political actors in the country, will that lead to a stabilization of the situation or will that be insufficient? Khalil Bendib asked that question of Professor Ali Ahmida of the University of New England in Maine. He is the author of Genocide in Libya, Shar, A Hidden Colonial History. The book details the hidden history of fascist Italian concentration camps in Libya between 1929 and 1934 through Libyan survivors' oral testimonies, which took over 10 years of field work to collect. Professor Ahmida, the last time we talked was about a year ago, and talks were going on about potential presidential elections to come, which seemed like a tall order back then, given the divisions Libya has been suffering from over the years since the revolution. Now the first round of voting is meant to start on December 24th. This election comes after years of UN-led attempts to usher in a more democratic future and end the country's civil war. Give us a summary of how we got to this point and thanks to which agreements and with the help of which foreign actors. I know it's a huge question, but give us just a brief summary of what happened over the past year or so. Well, your listeners uh, remember that uh, the Libyan crisis of transition started a while ago. And 2011, there was an uprising against the Gaddafi regime that was very much repressed at the beginning by the regime thinking it's going to just handle it as they have done before by repression. The things got really bad and the coalition of civilians who faced the regime were really courageous and began to mobilize. The East region fell, especially the city of Benghazi. And then the regime found itself facing much larger uprising all over the country. That uprising split the country between people who were calling for reform, rule of law and accountability and democratic representations and the regime that thought that we are the legitimate government and law and order is the case. Things got complicated when the coalition faced the Libyan army marching toward Benghazi that was completely liberated from the regime's reach. NATO was invited through the Arab League mandate and the UN Security Council resolution is supposed to protect civilians, but it went beyond that to really topple the regime. Libya engulfed in a civil war because of the NATO intervention. Gaddafi was killed in a very bloody lynching style and the uprising was militarized. Then we have some elections in 2012 that was successful, but the 
main leaders of the uprising began to split over what to do, and they did not really reach a minimum agreement. So what happened is uh, you have military commanders, you have jihadists coming from Afghanistan and Syria and Iraq, you have also exiled Libyans who came to the country, and you have also defected officials, ministers and military officers within the regime who defected from Gaddafi's regime to fought against him. The militarization of the regime and the NATO intervention really undermined this very positive, very, very courageous uprising, and the country became really engulfed in a civil war. The first stage was 2011, but then in 2014, another wave of civil war also continued, and the election of a new parliament did not really lead to a resolution. The UN intervened and negotiated a very, very flawed agreement in Morocco in 2015 to called the Sakhirat Agreement, and it created the government, but the country in a de facto way was split between the eastern region dominated by strongman, you know, a military, ex-military officer who was living in Washington by the name of Khalifa Haftar, and a hardcore militias and also armed groups and jihadists, also civilian militias in the city of Nusrata and Tripoli and Zawiya and the western region fighting each other. The country went through a civil war and unfortunately this Khirat agreement was not really applied in reality and the de facto crisis continued until last year when the UN managed to broker an agreement. And that agreement became successful for two reasons. The first reason is that the regional powers, the European powers, who were also engaged in the Libyan civil war through proxy, began to find some kind of compromise among them. They met in Germany, and also after that they met again, and the UN representative, Ghassan Salama, brokered a new compromise. He selected 75 Libyan delegates from all over the country, men and women, to create a new government. It succeeded, but at the same time, it did not really uh, resolve the conflict, especially we know that the mercenaries and the armed groups are still in the West. General Haftar tried to invade Tripoli in 2019 and failed to really uh, succumb to defeat his enemies. And the Western militias and government allied with Turkey and Qatar, the uh, General Haftar with Russia, Egypt and Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. So you have a really regionalized, internationalized civil war. Now, the agreement that was brokered last year in Germany supposed to lead to election on the 24th of December. There are good news and bad news. The bad news, as we say in America, the actors have not compromised and they still are sticking to their position and their arms and their allies outside Libya. The good news, the war stopped since last year. There was a central government and life began to come to normal. The roads were opened, the uh, airports are functioning, 
and there is a, a symbol of stability as some steps forward. But the contradictions and the factors that led to the division of the country are still at display. So we do have this election. It's going to happen a couple of weeks. Let's look at the major candidates since we have an election. Khalifa Haftar, who you just mentioned, is the strong man in the eastern part of the country, Banghazi, and as you mentioned, has led a 14-month war from eastern Libya against Tripoli. He's running for, for in this election. Should he be elected, will he be able to unite the country after being at war with half of it? He's accused to, to have committed war crimes against his own people, and he seems to have U.S. citizenship, which uh, should disqualify him. He was even rumored, as you know, to be a CIA asset for many years. Tell us more about this man and what would he represent if he actually got elected? He's a very, very interesting character with a very, very complex history. He was one of the three officers that was in the Gaddafi clandestine organization that toppled the monarchy in 1969. He comes from the city of Jdabia in the eastern part of Libya and a graduate of the Libyan military academy. His career became the first test when he was the military commander in the early 80s in Chad. Libya got involved in the Chadian civil war and supported one faction in the northern country of Chad. But then the conflict turned against the Libyan forces and their allies, and the Libyan army was defeated. He was blamed for that really terrible defeat and the killing of many, many Libyan soldiers and officers. He was captured and then joined the Libyan opposition, supported by the United States. And after that defeat, he was transported with the other soldiers to Washington. And the information that you shared with your listeners is correct. I think the best way to understand this up and down career is when reform was halted and frustrated in Libya under Gaddafi. People waited for a long time for some normalcy and some reforms to a very decaying regime and dictatorship. But then when the uprising took place in 2011, he went back and became a major actor in the East. And furthermore, when Benghazi was taken by jihadists and hardcore Islamist groups, he fought them and he became popular in the Eastern region. It's almost, we could say that the, uh, the militarized civil war, the rise of warlords, militias, and mercenaries, and the instability that followed made a figure like him resurrecting his career. So Khalifa Haftar, with all of that history and package that he brought to Libya, found himself popular in the East, uh, somehow in the South, and even some people at the beginning, some parts of the West. And the old regime followers began also to see him as a possible figure to bring stability. It's the failure of the leaders and the groups that ruled Libya after 2012 is the key factor in resurrecting his very controversial and very, very odd career in the Libyan affairs. He became popular, but at the same time, when he had influence in the South without much fight, he assumed that he could take over the capital and clean it, as he claimed, 
from the mercenaries and the militias and the corrupt warlords there. He couldn't really manage that war, and that war led to the destruction and killing. And the government in Tripoli uh, found an ally in Erdogan's Turkey who sent mercenaries and military officers and advisors, and he was defeated in a way. So he withdrew to the eastern part of the country. He is a product of the civil war and the desperation and also the deterioration of the condition in Libya, which allows even somebody like Khalifa Haftar to become acceptable to some groups in the country, not the whole country. Yet at the same time, let me add one more thing, Khalil. In civil wars, there are no innocent people. All of the factions in the East and the West and even the militia in the South committed atrocities and abuses of human rights. What they failed to do is in all civil wars all over the globe, and civil wars happen in many countries, you know, uh, it's not just the case of Libya, but they failed to understand that without a compromise, and they don't have to like each other, but also compromise for something that protects and reconcile at least in some issues is that is the only way out without it to say that I'm the only legitimate voice of the people and fight the other person. The civil war has been continuing in many ways. The citizens and the people of Libya have been left out and suffered quite a bit. And that really is the, the tragedy of the Libyan uprising that now hijacked and really replaced by greedy officials and politicians, mercenaries, militias, and strong men like Haftar. Speaking of strong men, the son of the former dictator, Muammar Gaddafi, his son, who was the most famous of, of the sons, Saif al-Islam, Gaddafi, in a situation like this, in a surreal situation like the one in Libya, has been deemed competent to run for president in the upcoming <laughs> elections. Over yes. At first he was not qualified, and then a court decided in his favor that he can qualify. After his father's death, he was captured by militiamen from Zintan and Obari in the country's southwest, put into prison, and released finally in 2017. Since then, the International Criminal Court has been demanding extradition to try him for crimes against humanity. Is it possible to imagine Qaddafi Jr. becoming president 10 years after the demise of his father? Is there so much nostalgia for Qaddafi years that it might be possible? That's precisely my point. From an objective outsider perspective, it's really shocking to see that. But if we understand how bad things were in Libya, how terrible the civil war and the insecurity and also the tremendous record of corruption and pillaging of the Libyan resources, this is a rich country of barely 7 million people and has tremendous oil and gas resources. Its citizens should have a really a good standard of living and continue to have that. But because of the failures of these leaders and because of the regional and international complicity in this civil war and their role in this mess and crisis, 
I think the ordinary citizens, not everybody, but segment of the population supporter of the old regime and other people began to lament that dictatorship years. And they say, at least we have stability. Our borders were protected. Our country has sovereignty. We had a minimal good life. But right now, it's been a long wasted decade. And because of this a really terrible deterioration in social, economic, and also educational aspect of life, people are so desperate, they rehabilitated not only Haftar at the beginning, they now look at somebody from the Gaddafi's family, Saif al-Islam, who was also played a very, very crucial role in the suppression of the uprising at, at the beginning of 2011. So it's ironic, Khalil, you are absolutely correct on that. But uh, that's that's really how... How desperate how, things have become. Yeah, how, yeah, desperate things will lead to rehabilitating and making an option or a character or a politician completely out of the picture. And in different settings, uh, they become really acceptable to at least segment of the population. The Libyans are grasping at straws right now. It is, it is. And I think what was really peculiar, Khalil, earlier uh, this year, the New York Times magazine uh, journalist went to Zintan and had a really a very long interview with Saif al-Islam. And it appears in, in our leading newspaper, the New York Times magazine, Sunday edition, and gave him quite a stage. I know that... The newspaper wanted some news, and this is big news, but um, that was the first step towards rehabilitating him. Yes, we have also to remember the parliament pardoned him earlier as they promoted Khalifa Haftar to the rank of a field marshal, and they appointed the commander of, uh, of the Libyan National Army. That's really the contradiction of the Libyan civil war and Libyan crisis and the people who are banned and completely excluded from the political process. Right now, we have 89 candidates uh, <laughs> running for the presidency of the country. 89. That's a lot of democracy. Yes, I think almost everybody in Libya want to be a president. <laughs> <laughs> I remember when Algeria had its first election back in uh, 1989 or 90. Yeah. There are people running, even uh, this football uh, soccer coach. Yes. Why, why not? Everybody was running. Yes, yes. And, and there was I, such a pent-up demand yes. for democracy. Yes, uh, and I, I, I have to say, you know, Algeria lost uh, 10 years, the black decade. Yes, yes. And Libya, unfortunately, also lost since the uprising. That's completely destroyed and become a history now. Just the memory of, uh, of it at the beginning. The country is, is still in a big crisis. And if you recall, I said Libya had a crisis of transition, not a crisis of society. Since we are talking about irony here, the irony also, is many of these leaders, including the one who are running for the presidency, are the leaders who many of them, not all of them, many of them are responsible about the mess that happened in this decade. Ali Ahmida is a professor of political science at the University of New England in Maine. He is the author of Genocide in Libya, Shar a Hidden Colonial History, which details the hidden history of fascist Italian concentration camps in Libya between 1929 
1934 through Libyan survivors' oral testimony, which took over 10 years of field work to collect. He's speaking with Khalil Bendib about the upcoming national elections in Libya and the current political landscape in that country. I'm going to take a couple of minutes to ask for your pledge of support. This is our last membership drive for 2021, and we hope you can help us reach our goal of $300,000. We at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa have a goal of $1,200 this hour. Last week, we exceeded our goal, and I hope you can help us do the same this week. This is the last time we are coming to you to ask you for your pledge of support. KPFA has a goal of $300,000 in this mini drive, and I'm sure with your support, we can get there. You can pledge securely online by going to kpfa.org and clicking on donate button or call 1-800-439-5732. It would be great if you can donate through kpfa.org. By donating online, you will not only be saving yourself precious time, but you will also be saving KPFA real money from a call center that charges a dollar a minute to our staff, supplies, postage needed to mail pledge forms, to data entry, and um, other costs. Your support is really crucial to KPFA survival. We only depend on your support, so please help us maximize the generosity of your gift and donate at kpfa.org. It's a very easy process. Just go to kpfa.org and click on Donate button, and you can also select from a list of um, gifts we are offering this membership drive. 1-800-439-5732, or kpfa.org. Please also consider becoming a sustaining member of KPFA Radio by agreeing to donate a recurring payment of $10 a month. Not only will you provide KPFA with predictable and dependable source of income, which will lower our costs and allow us to fund programming and plan for next year, it just may let us shorten our pledge drive, which I think it's uh, a plus for everyone. 1-800-439-5732 or kpfa.org. Choose the monthly donation option if you are donating online at kpfa.org. Now we go back to another excerpt of Khalil's conversation with Professor Ali Ahmida about the political landscape in Libya. One candidate who's mentioned as a possible consensus candidate is Parliamentary Speaker Aqila Saleh. Uh, tell us a little bit about him. He was a judge under Gaddafi's government, a respected judge from the eastern region, from the town of Gubba, and came through the legal system uh, of the country. Very able politician and legal scholar. He's a contender and uh, one of the leaders of the country since he has been the head of the parliament for this long time. And he's an intriguing character. Now, we know the election will go through two stages, the first stage and the second stage. Only two will emerge out of it. Aguila Saleh is a, an interesting character. Whether he can unify the rest of the country, 
I don't know. I mean, he seems to be an articulate, ground Libyan leader, but I don't know if he has the charisma, Khalid. Who are some of the other major candidates? Don't oh, give us all 89, but give us the, the I ones. I can't give that. We'll be here for a month. I'll try to go over them. There's a comedian called Muhammad Al-Khour, who was also running for office. There is an ex-minister of, of education under Gaddafi's regime, a respected philosopher and a graduate of the University of Chicago. Uh, his name is Muhammad Ahmed al-Sharif, but he's in his 80s. There is also the current prime minister, Abdul Hamid al-Dbayba, who signed an agreement with Stephanie Williams and the UN delegation and mission to Libya not to run for office. But he's now trying to do that, to, to change the, the laws. They are also the ex-ambassador to United Arab Emirates, a, a philosopher and a theologian, very respected one by the name of Arif Naid. And there is also the um, interior minister from the powerful city of Mustrata that emerged after 2011 as the most powerful city economically and militarily, Fatih Bash Agha. You have... Um, even the, the head of the Libya's judicial um, council, supposed to be neutral, he wanted to run for office. So in one, in one sense, it's, it's really absurd, the number of candidates. But on the other hand, I'm actually amused that Libyans are debating and are running for office. And also there are legal issues, reviews, there are qualifications. It's actually not bad in that sense. The only thing I, I worry about this election is really a very popular idea among Libyan public opinion. But whether Libyan people can have a free election and whether after the election is declared, the losers would accept the outcome of it, that's what worries me. Well, it's happened in, in this country. <laughs> <laughs> yes, 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 yes. So why not in Libya? Yes, right. exactly, exactly. I think we should be humbled uh, in America because we went through it. And we're still debating it. So we used to laugh about certain third world countries, but now it's generalized. People just it is, are, it, they it come out very, and they, Yes, know. it is very much true, Khalil. I remember I was talking to my sister four years ago, and she called me and she said, don't tell us about America is different from us. Your process and your leader is not different from the one we have. Exactly. <laughs> and I said, maybe you have a, an argument there. Yeah. So as you said, the real test will be after the election rather than before. Yes. Will the majority of the key stakeholders accept the results? Well, I think there are three positive steps. The first one is the war has stopped for almost a year now. The second one, there is the, the parliament gave the Western-led government by Abdul Hamid al-Bayba a yes vote. And the third one, which is, I think, is also we have to keep in mind the regional and the international actors who have been really guilty of siding with this side, the East or the West, in many ways, and fighting their war in Libya. They seem to be coming together to some agreement to call for the departure of all mercenaries and disbandment and disarmament of the militias. And I think this is a positive step. We haven't here seen that before. On the contrary, these countries, whether that's Turkey, whether that's the European Union, Italy, France, and the UK, and, and Russia for that matter, they were all supporting this group or the other. 
I think right now there seems to be uh, with the President Biden's election, the United States finally they began to take the moral responsibility that they contributed to the destruction of Libya and the removal of the old regime. And they have a moral obligation to really rein on all of those actors, at least. So there will be some pressure for disarmament and departure of mercenaries and applying the agreement that was signed in Germany. So in that sense, I feel like there is some positive step forward for that role. The UN mission has been just managing and negotiating. But as you know, Khalil, without might and support by the the key actors in, in the UN, the UN cannot become a good Samaritan. That's not really uh, never been the case of the UN. So I think this is really positive. But also, in all honesty, without getting rid of the militias, without really withdrawing all of the mercenaries in the West and the East, in, in that sense, without ensuring that there will be legitimate elections and bringing all those factions together to accept the outcome of the elections, I see this as another management. My biggest fear is that would be another Sheirat agreement like the one in 2015. It looks good in paper, but in reality, the powerful, the most armed, and the most supported by European and regional powers will impose their own will, and Libya will waste another decade. Let's hope and pray that's not going to be the case. So what will it take, in your opinion, to get there, to get all these disparate factions to agree to perhaps compromise some of their own power, military and otherwise, for the sake of the country? That's really the biggest question. And to me, two factors need to be taken in, in account to resolve or achieve that goal. The first one is the UN should continue to uh, play that role and the Biden administration should really be assertive in empowering the UN to take that role. But the Libyan people themselves need also to put pressure, civilian petitioning, writing, nonviolent protest. All of these things need to be heard because the politicians right now is no longer fighting over ideologies. Everybody now is fighting over the loot, the Libyan billions of dollars and the budget that all centered in Tripoli. The central bank is in Tripoli. The Libyan oil company is centered in Tripoli. And who controls the, the budget and the oil resources is really in control of the rest of the country. And I think Libyan people cannot just be bystanders and waiting for a solution from the sky, from God. God will help people when they really are active and are organized and they overcome all of these fears and also intimidations. And Facebook now is a really incredible forum for Libyan people and WhatsApp uh, exchanges and other things. But instead of blaming each other or waiting for a resolution, I think this really need to be more vocal, more active role. And that would enable people to say, we want solution, but it's not going to be just coming to us in our homes. This will help a great deal. Khalil, the Libyan election is very popular among the Libyan people. And it's, it might lead to some resolution, but I'm really afraid with these minds, with these actors, with these entrenched interests, they might try to sabotage it.
as they did in 2015. So I wouldn't say the picture is completely gloomy, but it's not really just a normal election and the most popular who gets the most votes will lead the country. It's not a normal situation. It's a country that's trying to get out of a civil war and a destruction of public institutions and corrupt leaders. Power, the allocation of resources, has been centralized in Tripoli. How did that happen? I remember a couple of years ago, they were fighting over the oil production in uh, the East remember, and the West. Yes, mm -hmm. yes. Tripoli, the capital, is really the heart of the country, has almost two million people. And the, the uh, UN, especially uh, when they brokered the 2015 Agreement in Morocco, and they recognized the government of National Accord, led by a very, very obscure figure who became a, selected by the UN by the name of Faiz Sarraj. They recognized that the central bank and the Libyan National Oil Company continue to be in Tripoli, and they will not allow the rival parliament government in the eastern region to have resources or control or at least a role in the allocation and the management of the central bank, the oil revenues and things like that. So in a de facto way, the West is controlled by an alliance of Islamists, of the Mastrata, most powerful military militias, and the UN recognized government. As if the UN government in Tripoli gave legitimacy to that government. So the existence of, of, of these national institutions, especially the economic one and, and the banking ones, allowed whoever controls Tripoli to control the resources of the country. So what's going on now, it's not just military over ideology or over um, uh, who controlled the country or so. It's been becoming more and more in the last five years a fight over who should control the resources of the country. It's really over oil and money and resources. And how did the UN manage to rule out the east of the country? Just by refusing to do business with them? They did, but it's become really small pieces here and there. And the eastern region and the southern region always complain that they are really marginalized. So they will get some salaries. Libya is still an oil welfare country, so people get a lot of their salaries and they're employed by the government. It's not really much. It's talking about 800 dinars, because the dinar also plummeted quite a bit. Libyans used to have a decent standard of living, a welfare state, a free education, a free medical care, subsidies for basic goods. But now one dollar is worth five Libyan dinars, and it used to be a couple of, of dinars or a dinar and a half in the old days. And Libyan standard of living, including the middle class, really suffered a great deal because of this. So we are not talking about just conflict over offices and politics and who should lead the country. The economic and social well-being of the Libyan people have been in a crisis and declined drastically. But I was just trying to understand how Haftar and people in the East just gave up on the idea of controlling some of the resources themselves. Was it just because the UN marginalized them, refused well, to do they, business with them? Well, they will get some resources, and they tried at the beginning to print money in Russia. And I think the fight over the oil fields, the fight over Tripoli, is really a part of the fight over resources. 
and they always the demand is the capital should be moved away from Tripoli. So what happened is they always complain that they get only small percentage of the budget. So they were not completely excluded because the salaries were paid also. I mean, they come uh, two or three months late, as my friends and my family members tell me. But at the same time, in Tripoli, the militias and the officials and the people who are really are in control of the city and through UN recognition of that government, they get the lion's share of the budget. So it's a proportional. The migrant situation has been catastrophic ever since Gaddafi's uh, demise. And he had warned Europe that he could really make their lives miserable by releasing the African juggernaut on them. And now it's just chaotic. You have people from all countries going through Libya, trying to make it to Europe with all sorts of terrible conditions for those people within Libya. Tell us a little bit more. I mean, how is it evolving? Is it getting worse? We just hear all sorts of horror stories that coming off of, uh, of Libya, these people trying to reach Europe. Yes, it's a very sad story, but also we need to look at all of its aspects. The collapse of many, many poor, struggling youth and also people struggling for, for opportunities in, in Eastern Africa and in, in West Africa, in, even in Syria and other parts, they are found in the collapse of the Libyan state and the central government after the defeat of the Gaddafi's regime, a place that's close to Europe. And the dream is Europe become like a paradise. It's like the United States when it comes to Central and, and America. Southern America. And what happened is you're talking about thousands and thousands, the estimate from half a million to a million poor working people, middle-class kids, young people who are coming to the Libyan borders. And Libya, as we talked about it before, Khalil, is a huge country. It's probably next to to uh, Algeria and maybe the Congo and Sudan as the, the four largest countries in Africa. It's really also the closest to Europe and also closest to West Africa and East Africa in that way. When the Libyan state collapsed in 2011, a lot of people rushed into through many, many chain of smugglers and criminals who really exploit them to go to, to come to, to Libya. And then they try to take boats, jet boats to Europe, Italy and France and, and other, especially Italy in that sense. So I think there are two sides to it. There is, in one sense, these are poor people, desperate people who, who want to come to Europe and they went through Libya. And sometimes smugglers, Africans, whether that's Sudanese or Chadians or Nigerians or Eritreans or Syrian, abuse them. And Libyans, too, who also abuse them in the way to Europe and exploit them. And there were some horrible stories that came out. And I think that's very true. Libya also was stoned by thousands of people, people looking for jobs and competed with Libyans who are already are suffering for the last 10 years from all of the upheavals in the civil war. And there is nobody to organize these immigrants, to give them visas, to really make sure that things done in a normal way. 
And you're talking about from half a million to a million immigrants who are coming and they are suffering. Some of them, uh, they die in, in the Mediterranean. Some are abused in these concentration gathering places. It's a terrible situation. And I think, unfortunately, they become victims of the Libyan civil war and the regional interventions. And they are smugglers, Europeans and Africans and Libyans, including Libyans, who are making money out of the misery of these people. Yes. And finally, the last question I'd like to ask you is, how has the COVID pandemic affected Libya compared to its direct neighbors like Tunisia, Egypt, Algeria? Well, Tunisia, of course, was one of the worst cases. The Libyan case, if there is any good thing about the civil war, a lot of people don't want to go to Libya. <laughs> There's always a silver lining, huh? Yes, yes. Yeah. But at the same time, I am afraid to read sometimes the news, text messages from Libya, uh, family and friends, because there are so many people who were impacted, especially the one with some health issues, people who are old. And it did impact Libyan um, population quite a bit. Not as bad, thank God, as one could expect, especially the, the health system and the medical infrastructure in Libya collapsed also. So Libyans suffer so much and they sell their jewelry and, and they spend their saving to go to Tunisia and Egypt to just have treatment. So far, it's been bad, but it hasn't been terrible. And I think the government, this very incompetent, corrupt government, finally brought some Russian and Chinese vaccine to Libya. And some people are vaccinated. But the irony here also, Khalil, even my sister, one of my two sisters, who is a very, very smart and intelligent, educated woman and a high school principal, she didn't want to be vaccinated. And I had to persuade her after three calls to do that. So there are people also in Libya, despite all the danger of the pandemic, they are against the vaccination. So we have all of the above. People are vaccinated a little bit. They could do more. The government should take care of them. And there are a few who are like us in America. They are still dubious about the vaccinations and they have all kind of conspiracy theories about it. 